Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. In every episode, we bring you insights into the teams behind the teams in professional football. Coming up on today's episode. Because what I won't let it do is let me kill my enthusiasm and love of the game. Because one thing I definitely want to do when I'm 60 is I want to be watching football you know, with my son, with my family, with my friends and loving the game. Um, so the day I ever stop doing that will be definitely the day I leave because I'm not letting my little kid of how I've ever always seen football being tarnished by, by anyone, to be honest. I'm Simon Austin, and this is our final episode of Season 4 of the Training Ground Guru podcast. It's a good one too, with Stuart Webber of Norwich City. Stuart is a true pioneer of the sporting director role. He first did it at Huddersfield Town, helping them reach the Premier League. And for the last six years, he's done it at Norwich City, transforming the club in terms of their finances and their infrastructure. I've often said that he is the purest example of a sporting director in this country. And that's because he's in charge of the whole football operation, from academy to performance to analysis to first team. He's the one who appoints the head coach and he's been very visible in the role as well. That led to a lot of praise when Norwich were promoted, twice, but also a lot of flack over the last year or so. So here's the podcast, and I hope you enjoy it. Stuart is one of the most straight-talking people in football, which always makes for a good listen, and this is no different. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today, Stuart. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And you very kindly showed me around the training ground earlier. Very, very impressive. Was that was your ambition from day one that you would be able to develop it in that way? Yeah, it was a big um, attraction for coming to, to Norwich when I came here, which is six years ago, near enough now, um, was I saw great sort of potential growth. And I think part of being a sporting director, which I'm sure we'll go on to, is you know being able to have that mid and longer term vision and, and trying to really create something which is sustainable and has some longevity you know so if we take you know the gym that you've seen today for example you know that'll be active I'm sure in 20-30 years time you know as the academy building which you've also seen so I think it's having that uh, ability to make an impact which makes a game and makes a football club stronger you know in the short medium and longer term future. And to get an idea of the time frame was it mainly Premier League money that's paid for that or was it built in stages? No it's been built in stages so we, we've sort of had a strategy so we started the first part was uh, we used cup money that we gained from playing Arsenal in the League Cup in our first season here uh, which was unbudgeted for and so we put some floodlights around uh, one of the training pitches because we had no floodlights around any of the grass pitches here. From that we, we developed a colony development group which was you know, let's get a big long-term plan for this training ground because previously we had 49 porter cabins here um, that all our staff worked out of where the gym which was tiny academy pitches had a hill in them and stuff so so we were like well we need to improve this but we need to do it sort of step by step uh, and then obviously when being in the Premier League that's helped and I've also thought it was important that for a club you know you see lots of clubs get to the Premier League and then lose their Premier League status and at the end of it you ask what have they got to show for it and, and I was very keen with the rest of the team here that each time we go there, um, obviously the ultimate aim is to try and stay there, of course, but if we can't, it's we must have something to show for it. So we've got at least a legacy for it uh, or else it's just, well, where did that, all that money go? So, um, 
Yeah, we're proud of what we've done so far. I mean, you saw that we're building a swimming pool, which will be um, you know world class, and that's, that opens in October. Um, so yeah, it's it's sort of been super exciting, and, and everyone who's been part of it's really proud of it. Is there a temptation to spend the money on player wages and transfers, even for you? Have you ever had that? No, um, no, I haven't, because it for me, it, it, ultimately, my philosophy is as a sporting director, you're here to build something which is you know will stand the test of time and players don't players don't so you can have buy the right player have a good season stay in the league for example and then get relegated 12 months later and you're actually no further ahead as a football club other than maybe you've had a few nice days out um you know which i appreciate is also important but so for me i've never had that temptation but i can see why people do i think we you know i've been afforded here the luxury that not many people get which is time to implement a vision uh, because you know the vision ultimately has been around facilities around youth productivity around improving our scouting areas and all of them actually take time so you can't actually fast track them unfortunately so you know i've been afforded good time here uh, which helps so i get maybe if there's a gun against your head which some of maybe people who do this job um have at places i also get the temptation to just go and spend it on a player because maybe you think that player keeps me in a job for an extra six months, so I get I get that pressure as well. Is there an understanding of that at board level then, and is that one of the key measures of success, the infrastructure as well? Yeah, it's a big understanding at, at, at board level because for them it it's um, or it has been you know we obviously our owners have been here twenty seven years now and have been through thick and thin. For them, it's about having a healthy football club that serves its community. You know, we have um, we sell out our season tickets every year. You know, our charity is one of the biggest in the country. Um, Norfolk is a very big county and we're the only football club in it. So there's lots of areas that, you know, we go into and, and deliver football programmes and, and whether that's inspiring young children or whether it's helping at the other end, you know, people who've got dementia. It, it's it's a much bigger vision than just what goes on on a Saturday afternoon. Um, so they get that. So they get, you know, when we're talking about you know, building an academy building, they get the, well, that, that's not just for now, it's for the next 20, 30 years. Um, and that's really important for this football club. You know, as much as we want to win every Saturday, of course we do. Um, and we want to be as successful as we can be. The facts are we haven't got the wealth to compete with, you know, most of the people that we're trying to compete with. So we have to find a different way and we have to have some different targets within that. Um, or else ultimately, you know, we'll just fail if our target is just to, get to the Premier League and stay in there all the time. That's that's difficult with, with the hand that we've, we're sort of dealt. So it's about having a bigger sort of vision than that. And, and that comes from, ultimately comes from the owners. I'm sure one day that will change. It's club they'll have different ownership. But I think even then, I think the new owners at whatever time that will happen, because, you know, our owners are, are getting on a little bit. So they'll be the first to admit that, obviously, you know, it can't last forever. At least the new people coming in aren't having to build a training ground, build an academy, build infrastructure around the community all, all of that stuff's there maybe they can concentrate on you know redeveloping the stadium and you know investing in the players squad so I think it, it definitely helps that we, we've got owners who, who get that. Is it hard with the media and fans in particular that their sole measure of success really is results and like the last result? Yeah it is of course but also understandable as well because you know I'm a football fan as well and, and you don't pay your money to go and listen to someone like me talking about you know, long-term plans. You you want to win the game that you're at that particular day and ideally your team plays well in that win as well. And, and I think it's important that we're striving to do that. And, you know, we've won, 
you know, two trophies in the last three years as well, uh, which we have to not forget. And we've competed in the hardest league in the world, you know, where you've got a club, for example, in Chelsea, who've spent more than the rest of Europe on themselves. And, and we're trying to compete against that when we get in there. You know, we've got, for example, Brighton and Brentford, two fantastic clubs who are great models. But, you know, as the last accounts that Brentford published in 2021, their owner had put 130 million in. Brighton's at their latest one is 700 million. So even people who would see as our peer group, it's like, and ours is zero. So to, to give some context, so it, it's it's super tough. So I get that with the fans. I think the key is with the fans and media, it's constantly trying to communicate that. Um, but we also understand that they want to win today. And, and but in mind, we want to win today as well. I think that's, that's key. There's no one here walking around happy if we get relegated or if we don't beat... X club on Saturday or Tuesday night. We want to win every game as well, but we're having to do it in a sustainable way where we still put growth at the forefront of it. So if we don't achieve the ultimate goal, well, we should still get wins in a season. We can't just write seasons off of, oh, we didn't achieve on the pitch, oh, and we didn't achieve off it. Then that's a complete disaster. Whereas at least if we don't achieve on the pitch, okay, but we've still grown the club. We're still getting closer from an instru- in in. Um, from infrastructure point of view or from staffing levels point of view uh, to where we want to be because what we're ultimately trying to do is build a Premier League club um, and that's what you've seen today is is that's taking place that we're building it that when this club gets to and does thrive in the Premier League because it will happen for sure um, a lot of the work has been done before that. And one thing that struck me walking around it seems very very uh, tranquil happy place fantastic facilities um, and it struck me that that must have been very different from when you came in because that was quite a massive period of change wasn't it really and, yeah. and turmoil be like a fair word to describe it no I'm not sure turmoil I think just maybe a little lack of direction um, probably had a few periods of success in, in and out of the Premier League um, but didn't have a lot to show for it you know and, and ultimately we we Ultimately, we thought, right, let's simple, let's simplify this plan. And we made it about having a style of play that we can work to creating youth products and investing in our scouting to try and find players from markets maybe we hadn't been into or the club hadn't been into um, into before. So I think it was about aligning them things. So, you know, we already had a good academy. We were cap one and there was talented players in there. But the fact of the matter is our productivity wasn't good enough. And that's because the whole club wasn't connected. So when we appointed our first head coach, um, Daniel Fark, you know, it was very much him having the understanding that that's an expectation to produce young players and give young players a chance. But what you get in return is you'll get the benefit of time. So we don't expect you to give Jamal Lewis or Max Aaron's a debut. And if they make a mistake, that's on you. That has to be on the club um, because, you know, that's part of what we're trying to do. So I think we just injected that plan into people. Uh, and then it was about taking action so this club had talked for the last five years apparently prior about rebuilding the training ground etc and you know I remember a, a very vivid conversation with one of the groundsmen who, who said yeah okay mate I've heard all this before and I thought okay and I actually said to him yeah but you've not heard it from me um, so I think it'd been a club maybe where for the staff there'd been lots of things oh this will happen or if we do this we'll do this and, and, and they didn't happen so I think for us it's about action so in terms of the facilities about them showing that no actually this is going to be different we are going to be different and I think then once you get people buying into that and they believe in that and they see that you're true to your word they they normally want to follow then and then and then it becomes their plan and it becomes and I think that's here now what you've seen today is everyone's invested in that everyone's played a big part in that 
you know, some of the best ideas have come a long way away from my desk, have come from, you know, empowering our staff to come up with them ideas. You know, the players have been on this journey. If you take, you know, Grant Hanley's been here the whole time I've been here, Tim Krull more or less the whole time, Timu Puki more or less the whole time. They've been part of helping this club grow and growing our culture and standards and, and stuff like that as well. It's not just about one person, I think, and, and that's where it's about power is can we make a real sense of belonging? Because what you do get as well with this club is because where we're based, you know, a long way away as you found out on your drive, it's the only club here. So there's a lot of interest in our club. So we can harbour a bit more of a collective. And, and I think that's quite powerful that, you know, when you go through difficult times, the stadium's still full. When you go through good times, it's full. So it, it gives us that chance to come here and go, now this club is a bit different. It's not just another club in London or another club in the Northwest. It, it can be a little bit unique and we and we try and harbour that. I suppose it's quite a different management job for you now, isn't it? So I remember we had Dave Redding on the podcast, who was head of performance for the FA and England yeah. Rugby before that. And he was saying like he's a very good change manager, he thinks, but maybe not as good a status quo manager. So it's quite a, do you think it is a different thing? Yeah, it is a different thing. And, 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 and it's a diff, very different challenge as well. And, and that was one that, you know, so I remember we came here, we, we, we changed a lot, a lot of head of departments, we, the squad, everything we sort of changed, average age came down three, four years of the team, you know, emphasis on young players, emphasis on academy. So rather than it being us and them, because although we're quite a small site, there was very much an us and them when I turned up between the first team and the academy. So we, so we knocked them down. Then we had success. We got to, we got to the Premier League with a really young team. Um, you know, got relegated, unfortunately. But then we had to rebuild another team. So that was, for me personally, a new experience of, OK, we've got to rebuild another team here now. And I think it's even, as the job's gone on, I mean, you've met today some of our guys involved with our data and innovation department and, you know, or in the soccer ball, whatever it might be. And... It's thinking about, okay, what's next in five years' time? Whereas probably my previous job at Huddersfield and then definitely my first two years here was all about change, driving a place, installing culture, all these different things. Whereas over time, it's now become, okay, what's the next thing now? And it might be the swimming pool, for example, is a vision that I might not be here to see the full um, benefit of that I might not be here to see the full benefits of the data and innovation team so it's a definitely a different way of thinking about it whereas as Dave quite rightly says you know when you're changed I, I agree I think I'm also good at that like he would be at that of going in somewhere livening it up um, getting people to buy in um, it is different that you know a lot of the staff and I've worked with for six years you, you get a bit closer to them um, you, you know when you change you know I've had you know my child's you know six years older i'm six years longer married since then so like of course you become a, a slightly different person as well you have different perspectives on life yeah. you go through different experiences in your personal life which you know which naturally make you change i think if anyone sat here and said oh, i'm exactly the same person as six years ago i go well that's a failing because you obviously haven't developed because we should be different but i think it's um yeah it's definitely an interesting dynamic of, of change within the yeah. role yeah it's interesting yeah because looking at your career you sort of didn't stay anywhere that long did you before this you were moving no, on moving yeah. on moving on but now it's six years in it I think six yeah, years in summer yeah yeah which is a long time which I always knew when I came here I didn't want to leave Huddersfield at the time because you know we, we were doing some quite good things there so I knew when I came here for this I was like I've got to make this a longer term one unless something mind-blowing comes or which everyone accepts you then leaving but I couldn't certainly leave for for a sideways role or, or something slightly better um, 
or what would perceive as slightly better. It's like I need to have a period of, of you know, I needed to go through hiring a coach, maybe sacking a coach, um, having changes over a staff, having seen the game change. You know, like we've we've spoke about earlier about the the game change. You know, thinking about how do we get our players to be able to make better decisions quicker in the future. You know, being able to see through an academy. Um, not through one set of young academy players come through, but the next set and the next set after that, seeing real staff development, you know, how you used to take a staff member from being an intern, maybe to heading up a department, that can take six years. So it was about coming here and, and being able to experience all of them things and test myself in all of them type of environments as well, because, you know, if not, you know, going through a relegation, uh, unfortunately it's twice, but, you know, the learnings you get through that, Whereas if you leave, which I could have done before the last, the first relegation, you almost gone, might not have got the experience of that. And I'm probably better for having that experience. I'd rather not have it, don't get me wrong. But on a personal level, you, you sort of learn through that. And I think it's, I was very keen on this one being a longer period of time. And then as I've been here, clubs full of great people, amazing owners, you also then think, well, it'd take a lot for me to leave, to stay in football. It wouldn't take a lot to necessarily leave for... To, for for a change of something else in my life, but in terms of football, you, you understand that there's not many clubs where you get the autonomy to to try and do your job. Um, you know, there's very little interference. Yes, there's challenge, but that's healthy, and, and we need challenge. Of course, we do, but there's a big difference between challenge and interference. So um, I know I'm very fortunate because I speak to my counterparts at other clubs a lot, um, and I hear some of the challenges they go through and think. I'm not sure I could put up with that. And when I'm writing articles about you on the website, I often say you're the purest form of a sporting director in the country because yeah. you do clearly head up the football department, yeah. you're visible, you're a figurehead. Would you agree with that from what you see? Elsewhere? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Um, I think Yeah, I, I think that's fair because I think there's still so many where it's maybe glorified head of recruitment job or a glorified academy manager job. And I think it's a job where... For me, in its purest form, a bit like on the continent, it's you appoint the head coach, you make a decision on the head coach, you, alongside other people, of course, make decisions on player recruitment, academy pathway, facility development, all of these different things. Otherwise, you know, if, if you're just signing players, it's like, well, you're head of recruitment. Really, I did that job at Wolves. I was head of recruitment at Wolves and, you know, I was there, sat at the top table on player signings. But I wouldn't have called that a sporting director. We had Kev Fellwell as a sporting director. Um, but I think, yeah, he is definitely one of the more, more purest ones. I imagine Dan's now probably got it at Newcastle as well, um, seeing the work he, he talks about up there and stuff like that. So I think it's... But I think that's how the role should be as well. I think it's how can you be accountable for something if you actually haven't got that autonomy? Because really then it's like, well, there's someone hiding who's making them decisions. Yet often... As a sporting director, you're rolled out to deal with answering questions where it's like, well, that wasn't my decision, but you're having to justify it. Whereas it should be the person who's made that decision who should have to justify it. Whereas, you know, I have that here, you know, I'm vis visible to media, fans, etc. I don't hide, you know, if it's a tough decision, I'm there. Uh, I'll admit to mistakes, I take ownership on stuff. It's never oh, the board's fault or the chairman or whatever. Well, we haven't got one, but, you know, it... it you know, and I think that's how it should be, personally. Because what you often see, even with a club that has a sporting director, they will bring a manager in and then you can say they are taking charge of the football operation. Really, they're bringing a lot of their own staff in. The philosophy might change. 
but but you're keeping that alignment and that continuity then always. Yeah, I'm certainly trying to. I think, but also being really open that you know, if you're appointing a head coach, he's normally pretty experienced. Obviously, got a very unique skill set. Normally, a very unique type of personality. And you've got to understand the challenges that he faces daily and, and show a level of empathy towards that. So I think it's also good that you bring someone in who's going to challenge what's been going on because maybe the straightest quo hasn't been right. You know, we had it after Daniel Fark. So we, we, we um, sacked Daniel, who'd been amazing for this club on every level. Um, but ultimately, in the Premier League, we won six games out of uh, 50 with him. So we made the change to go to Dean Smith because it's like, well, this guy's been more successful than Daniel in the Premier League. What can we learn from him? Because obviously what we're doing isn't, isn't quite correct. Um, and I think it's, it's having that as well. And I think that's where it's about stripping your ego back, whether you're the head coach or sporting director or anything else. It's about what's best for the football club. Um, and I think anyone who would walk around our training ground would you know, go, of course, when it comes to head coach, there's times where he's fully in charge then there's times where I have to be fully in charge but I think the key thing is is the relationship between the two you know and everyone I've ever worked with whether that's David at Huddersfield and, and obviously now back at, at Norwich whether that was Daniel or whether it was Dean because they're the only four I've worked with properly closely to it's about working together as well for the best of the club and there's times where I have to protect him whether that's with a player type conversation where it needs to come more from the club to protect his relationship with the player and whether sometimes that's with him having to, to protect the club and go, actually, this is me. And I think it's about dropping your ego and going, well, what's the best for the club? What's the best to help the team be successful? And what's the best for the bigger picture? Right, let's drop our egos. I'll take the hit on this one. But the key is, is that communication and working together, which we would talk, wherever I've worked with, every single day and discuss and, and have that ability to show vulnerability to each other, to challenge each, each other, um, to be open-minded um, because ultimately I'm still yet to meet anyone who's that good that they don't need all of them things. Everyone does because even if you are that good in this moment, you won't be in a year because life and the game moves on. So you, you've got to be constantly getting your head up and, and challenging each other. But but also I think that word I use again is empathy of him understanding the challenges a, a sporting director has, uh, you know whether it's here or anywhere else. But then like likewise, me having the understanding the challenges that, that he has and, you know, understanding where he needs support. And I think that's a key. I see it as a team as opposed to uh, us and him. I don't know wrong at times. You have to make tough calls. Of course you do. And and you have to be the boss in that moment. And, and that's, you know, not particularly nice. But my style very much is no, we're, we're working together and I'll sit in the background as much as I can. Um, but I'll normally talk when it's to try and create a protection layer for the head coach so he doesn't get caught up in stuff he doesn't need to get caught up in. I'd rather me talk, maybe get a bit of flack for that, if that can take away the uh, the pressure on them guys, you know, so they can do their job. And I suppose being visible and the figurehead, you were put on a pedestal, weren't you, quite a bit and lauded a lot and, you know, included by myself. And then last season or the last year, you've got suddenly got a bit more flack. Is is that hard to, to balance for you? Um... Not really, because I think it comes with the territory. You, you've got to take the good, and you've got to take you've got to take the bad. I think, luckily, I don't read either the good or bad uh, if it's about myself. So it, that doesn't affect me what people say, um, and it certainly doesn't affect how I how I do my job. You know, so if it is being lauded, I'm not suddenly thinking I'm great, and if likewise, if I'm getting stick, I don't suddenly think I'm not good enough. Um, 
So I think, but I can see why it is difficult as well for people. But I think we also live in that that media world now. I think we were talking about it over lunch of, you know, it's so reaction, it's so instant. You know, you win a game, you're brilliant. You lose a game, you're rubbish. You know, um, and that's why you have to do as your best as Eddie Jones talks about ignoring the noise. You have to do your best to do that and to protect your staff from that or else your strategy will be forever up, down, up, down, up, down and you'll never actually achieve anything. So it's about trying to take that emotion out of it. Um, of course, everyone would much rather be getting praised than, than be getting stick. But that comes with the territory, and and if you don't want that, you you know you need to do you need to do something else really because that just comes with it, and you know you don't ask for it, you don't want it. But I believe in communicating um, outwardly as much as in inwardly. I think it's important that we're honest and and we try and tell people our plan and we admit to our mistakes and show a bit of vulnerability publicly. So, unfortunately, that brings attention. You you know, as lots of other sporting directors we both know who never talk. Um, and that's fine, that works for them, but I also think, well, you know, I, I don't think that's right. I think a fan should know what's going on. Um, some things you can't talk about, of course we know that, but, you know, I think I think we owe that to them as a football club to talk as, as much as we can, and, you know, within reason. You know, you can't be talking every week because then people get bored of you, but, you know, a couple of times a year, that moment where you can't explain decisions and you're not asking people to agree with you, um, but at least hear you out and go, okay, no, fair enough. At least he's been honest. We move on. Um, and that's just the way I've done it. But with that comes sometimes undue attention. And I know when you came in, you said the club had been open-minded to the continental model of the sporting director. Uh, probably a lot of people didn't know about the sporting director role then. Um, was it something you'd been passionate about for a while? And I'm, I'm thinking like Damien Camoli, was he a big influence? Yeah, Damien, the, for sure, the biggest influence. Because uh, prior to Damien... I'd not worked with one before. So when I went to Liverpool, Damon came in quite quickly. I think it was around six months as this, I mean, it's head of football strategy to start with and then director of football. And I was intrigued to sort of like, you know, because I was still, like the rest of the country, probably a little bit ignorant to what what's one of them. Because uh, we've been brought up, let's be honest, with managers, haven't we? And chief execs and chairman. So uh, Damon came in and, um, I mean, you know Damon well. He's incredibly intelligent. Um, and I learned a lot from him, which I still use to this day. But certainly that was having worked closely with him for within a quick time, I realised, OK, that's the job I want. If that becomes a prominent job over here, that's the type of job I want. Because I think you're evolved enough in the day to day to get that buzz of winning, losing, whatever on a Saturday. But you're also a role where you can step back and think bigger picture. And, you know, I like building stuff. Um, whether that's teams, whether that's infrastructure, uh, I like you. I love youth development. Um, I love the scouting side. So you know, we started a South American project four years ago, which saw our first two players ever for this club direct from South America this summer. So being able to have that longer term vision and but be able to implement it, you know, I got that from Damien. Um, you know, the interest in data, and you know, he was fifteen years ago talking to me about that. You know, I'm still trying to play here catch up because he's a lot more intelligent than me, but. No, for sure, working with him. Uh, and then Mike Rigg at Man City. You know, I got close to Mike uh, with our, our links back at Wrexham. And that's when I took the opportunity to go and work with him at QPR because that was a chance to move to the first team. But I'd never left if Damien hadn't left Liverpool. If Damien, I still think if Damien was at Liverpool now, unless I'd got sacked, I'd probably still be there in some capacity because I always felt every day I learned something from him. And that's been really important in my career to date. Of I want to be around people who can make me better and I can I can learn from whether they're working underneath you, you know, so 
for example, someone you've met today, you know, uh, John Iger, you know, I learn something from him every day, you know, and he reports into me. So it's not about a hierarchy. Um, but yeah, no, it was a disappointing day when Damon left. I, I'll actually, certain things you like, I remember the phone call exactly where I was and it's like, okay, that's probably me done here then. And it was, you know, I left within six to eight weeks to go to QPR because I thought, okay, I've lost a guy that was keeping me here. And have you always had that fierce drive from when you were young? Because is it right you started at 16 as an assistant groundsman, was it, at Wrexham? 18, yeah. So 18, yeah. Um, so yeah, I I have. And I think it comes from your upbringing. You know, I was, I was um, born and raised in a, in a little village called Cumsum Log, which is eight miles in, inland from Aberystwyth in mid Wales. And, you know, you're not really supposed to leave them places and, and go into the big wild world you you know Welsh villages you're sort of born into and you sort of stay into really that's just sort of the, the culture and, and there's nothing wrong with that because they're amazing amazing places but um, I always love football you know I, I was very poor academically um, and football was my only thing that I was ever into I'm Formula One so um, I decided to leave home at 16 and, and I moved up to a college near Wrexham so I thought I want to get closer to the big wide world or what I thought was a big wide world then. You know, Wrexham for me was a big wide world then. And uh, yeah, I did a course in horticulture. Um, and as part of that, I got into Wrexham work experience and then they gave me a job within six months. So I was, I was working on the pitches there. Um, that's why I'm very anal about football pitches. So at the training ground and, you know, like invest so much time with the grounds and stuff because it's like, because I think football has to be played a certain way in my opinion. You can't do that for pitches and right. But having been with them guys where it's like it's normally the least resourced, it's normally the afterthought, it's normally when people make redundancies or cut some of the ground staff, we're actually the opposite. We've got a team which is probably bigger than it needs to be because it's like, no, I see it the other way is if we don't get the pitch right, how can we play the football we want to play? How can we develop our academy kids that we want to develop them? So, um, so yeah, so I went from there to Wrexham, but at the same time I was doing my coaching badges as well. So I got a job within their centre of excellence um, coaching so I was sort of working on the pitches during the day coaching coaching of an evening doing my badges and then I got a job Steve Cooper who's obviously now the forest coach he um, got made head of youth there and then they appointed me assistant head of youth so I was there at probably 20 I was only about a couple of years on the grounds I was coaching full time there doing my A licence since done my pro licence as well so it was but it's just I knew and still know that I could outwork anyone so back then it didn't bother me that okay, you want me to coach every night because someone's off sick or someone can't come in because they've got a problem at home, bang, I'll be the first, I'll be do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. And it, and it was just that attitude of, you know, non-stop obsession really with it. Because I also knew as well where I'd come from, hadn't played the game, had the stigma of being a groundsman. It's like I've got to prove myself way more than, than other people have to do. Um, because, you know, we had in coaching our centre, we had Darren Ferguson at the time and Brian Carey, you know, but they've both been captains of Wrexham, played for their countries, you know, so it's a bit like, well, if I'm only going to get respected more of them as a coach, if I, I've got to help work them and I've got to try and become better than them. I'm not saying I ever did, but that was my, that was my attitude every morning when I woke up and every night when I went to bed, I've, I've got to work hard, I've got to learn more, I've got to self-teach myself here, I've got to put myself out there to be shot at, you know, go on courses, which, you know, you do have that imposter syndrome because, you know, I was doing a pro license with Rob Page, who's now the Wales manager, Marcel Desailly, Jens Lehmann, Didier Mann. You're sat there going, when they say, what have you won? 
you know, it's top, tough to say the Mid-Wales under-12 league and I scored in the final because they're like, they don't even know where that is. Um, so you have to go through them doubts and, and, and stuff where you think, what am I doing here? Um, but that's also, you know, part of it. And why did you then make the move into scouting and recruitment more? Pure opportunity. So Liverpool, Steve Cooper moved to Liverpool um, and recommended me, to, recommended me to a guy called Malcolm Elias who was head of youth recruitment then. He's at, I think he's still at Fulham now. And we had a tight link anyway between Wrexham and Liverpool because uh, Rick Parentine was chief exec. His son was in our academy. One of his other sons was working in there. Our chairman at Wrexham was really good mates of him. So, you know, they kept taking staff and players. So it, it was like almost a sister club unofficially, really. And then um, Malcolm offered me a job there. Then uh, he actually left the club. A guy called Frank McParlin came in. He's just gone to Birmingham, actually, as head of recruitment. And so I thought, okay, well, that's over. But then Steve convinced Frank, said, listen, meet, meet Stuart at Wrexham. I think it'd be good for you. And Frank, I went and met him for an afternoon and he gave me the job. So, but that was then in scouting. So I had to make that decision. At that point then, I was head of youth at Wrexham. So I was coaching the under-18 team with Joey Jones. It's like, okay, I'm going to leave my coaching journey here for recruitment. It, but it's Liverpool. So I had to make that decision. And I thought, well, you might never get a chance to work for a club like that again. So if you do, you've got to take it. And you know, obviously, it worked out worked out quite well because Frank was great. He invested in me a lot, um, gave me a lot of autonomy to do what I wanted to do. And then obviously, Damien, as we've already touched on, came in, and that just went up the charts. And Steve Hitchin, who was sort of Damien's right hand man, um, was brilliant with me. You know, giving me loads of opportunities around doing first team games if I was out of a youth tournament. So I was really lucky that, for whatever reason, a set of people there believed in me and, and trusted me. Um, you know, and helped me develop. So that's why I made that change. And then once I'd worked with Damien, I was like, okay, that's the role I think I want to do. Because originally I probably thought about being a manager because I was always like, I've always known I want to be in a position where I can make big decisions because that's what excites me the most is actually making tough calls. Um, so that's why I always thought it'd be management if I wanted to be in that position to make tough calls until working at Liverpool with Damien and seeing that role and going, okay, well, actually you get a little bit of both there. Do you meet resistance as you make the changes? So as you go from coaching to scouting to then football operations at Huddersfield, is there always a little bit of doubt from people? Yeah, I think you have to reprove yourself, don't you? I think it's, um, you know, as, as you go up in levels as clubs, well, I knew when I came here from Huddersfield, there was for sure some people who looked down the nose at me of, I've only been at Huddersfield, mate, you know, because Norwich would see themselves as a much bigger club than Huddersfield. So I think each time there's been happening to prove um, to prove yourself but actually I quite like that I think that's, I quite enjoy that challenge of you know when you feel like oh okay I've got something to prove here it, is, it sort of quite drives me on that and I don't mind that as well because I think there should be an element of that as well if you want to grow and get better you should have to be a little bit uncomfortable and think oh I've got a bit to prove here well yeah you have if you want to be good enough for this club you've got to prove it a bit like Liverpool you go to Liverpool from Wrexham probably 90% of the workforce think oh, have you got this job so you've got to try and you got to try and prove yourself, but it's. I think that's all right. I think it's a bit like a young player going into the first team, the first team dressing room. Yeah, they might accept you in there, but it's a bit like, go on then, show us what you got, um, and that determines whether they're good enough to stay there. Then because you see so many spat out, um, so I think yeah, I think that's a natural life of challenge, isn't it? And at Huddersfield, did you sort of formulate that sporting director role as you went along? Then did you think this is how I want to do it and change it and build it? Yeah, I, mean, I think it was good uh, at Huddersfield because obviously I followed Ross Wilson 
uh, who went to Southampton, obviously he's now at Rangers, and I think so. He'd already, and this is one of the attractions of the job, is a lot of the um, things were in place already. Um, I saw opportunities where I thought we could we could grow that program and, and develop it, and, and I certainly thought in the area of foreign recruitment and foreign coach because it hadn't really gone down that line too much. They it signed Phil Billing as a as a young guy from Denmark who did well. Um, so I remember talking to Dean very early, Dean Hoyle, sorry, the owner of Huddersfield early about when we change the head coach because that was going to happen at some point um, naturally. Would you be open to a foreign one? And he said, yes. So I said, okay, I'm going to spend a bit of time researching what I think could be the best transitioning country to the championship. So rather than just going, oh, let's just get a Brazilian, uh, for example. It's like, okay, so we looked a lot at the Bundesliga too and thought there's lots of parallels in the two leagues where actually players from that league could be a success in, in the championship, potentially, you know, because it's only potentially. So that's when we, and then we looked at the movement of German coaches over that period of time success story, success story, success story. And you thought, okay, if we could get one of them into England, because Huddersfield is all about, we had to massively overachieve to be successful, you know, because our starting point was really low in terms of size of club, budgets, etc. So um, it was about trying to think differently and trying to sort of do it differently. So that's why we made a decision to go with, with David Wagner. And then that following summer, we signed 14 players, of which I think seven or eight were from abroad and, and mostly Germany. And, you know, it um, it worked well. Unfortunately, that's been closed now because of um, Brexit. You can't take players oh, yeah. from the second Bundesliga, yeah, but yeah, yeah. so that's why we had to do South America. But it's uh, but it's about trying to find that competitive advantage. So for us, it was at that time that was a competitive advantage because we were we were playing games against teams who didn't you knew they didn't know our players. You know, you'd be sat in a boardroom before and their chair like, who's who's Chris Love, who's Chris Schindler, or whatever. And at the end of the game, it's like, how much does he cost you again? Well, he was a free transfer and he's on six grand a week. He was, And they were like, okay, we're paying ours 30 grand a week. And it's like, yeah. Um, so we had to find a way. So, which was great, you know, and Dean backed it unbelievably because it's his personal money at that club, which which topped it up. Did a great deal with season tickets, half the price. So suddenly we saw more season tickets than ever. David, incredible, getting the crowd sort of with him. And key, we had a good start. Um, that season and people just believed in what we did and then that team just grew together David grew we all grew and obviously ended in a you know a great success but for me personally it was a great opportunity to go and try some stuff that was in my head that I thought could work but the fact is you never knew it would work or not and that, and that was a good thing about Huddersfield I always thought it was a club that it was a safe one to go and practice in that sounds bad practicing but I always thought well what's the worst that can happen we finish 18th in the championship okay well they used to finish in somewhere between 12th and 18th so it, that's not a disaster. Uh, whereas, what's the best that can happen? Okay, we can massively overachieve and you know create you know create a new story. I, I remember I did an article about five six years ago with quotes from you where you were saying I would get a reserve team coach from Germany, but I wouldn't appoint an under twenty threes coach. I think from this country. Yeah. Um, and you had quite a few reasons for that, which stacked up. Um, would that change now? Have you changed your view with those under twenty ones coaches? Um... Yeah, I think, listen, our coaching levels are going up and up and up for sure. You know, you see the success, whether it's Steve Cooper, Kieran McKenna. Um, there's some really good work going on, um, which is great. But I still don't see the under-23 league or under-21 league as it is now as being uh, a good enough step to being a first-team head coach. You know, I think if you look at, say, Kieran McKenna, you know, he did that journey, but then was in, you know, close with Ollie. Um, Steve Cooper had his own team uh, um, with England so I think it's 
I still don't think our league is brilliant for that because you know, you're not really working with your own team every week. You're not working in competitive league. You never know who you're playing. So you could be playing us on Friday night and you know what, we've got a big training. We've got another game on Tuesday first team. So actually we play mostly under 18s. So, you know, it, it's a bit of an unrealistic league in my opinion. There's still not that crowd pressure. There's still not that real pressure. I know there's relegation pressure, now, but let's be honest, no one really cares. Uh, whereas at least in the Germany, for example, you know, David coached, uh, Dortmund second team in the third, German third league, you know, our equivalent of League One, and you're playing big clubs within that, and there's big pressures within that. So I think I still don't think it's perfect for it, but I think what you are seeing is more coaches get opportunity with first team, uh, which I think that will much more set them up, and I think um, yeah, I'd have no issue um, in the future doing that. I think what's important though for coaches to understand is. It's about going on a journey of learning as well um, and not rushing too quick to either do it or rushing to leave. You're doing a good job at a mid-table League One club. Gain your experience. Don't just jump at the first championship job and then you get sacked in six months and you've forgotten about it. It's like build your CV, build your experiences because I think they can move too quick. I think that happens as well. I think there's a clamber for that a bit in our country. I suppose, like you say, most of them, even Mick Beale, he's had the spell as an assistant, hasn't he, yeah. before becoming a manager yeah exactly you know where you get to take a first team set of players in a proper training session where some of them are going to tell you to piss off I think that's important you know I think it's that is really important to have that sort of experience Um, listen the guys who've done that will tell you best but I think if you've just been solely 21s and to make that step to the first team it's a whole whole different world Uh, whereas at least for example Mick Beale he's with Stephen he's seeing how he is after a game, you see him getting hammered in the media or you seeing this happen and that happen to, to learn from him and think, okay, when I'm in that opportunity, I'll, I'll do this. Yeah, maybe Neil Critchley did it well, in fairness. You know, anyway, I thought he did incredible at Blackpool. Obviously, he's gone to QPR now, so, you know, he's an example of maybe the other way, but I think maybe he'd have been number one at Crew at some point, I think. So, um, but yeah, everyone's journey's different. You know, I think from my side, Definitely back then, I, w- I would have said no. I think that gap is closing. I still think we can do some work. I think collectively as a country, for the benefit of our football, we, we can't drop the ball on that. We've got to keep you know, driving them standards forward because we've produced now the best players in Europe, you could argue. You know, tr- you know, like It's not just a fluke. You know, These young players coming through are super exciting. We need the coaches to follow that um, so that you know, maybe in five years, maybe it's Mainz taking one of our coaches as opposed to us taking Mike's coach, I think that would be amazing for us. And you've had a big project off the pitch as well with the Summit Foundation. Um, yeah. Where are you with that at the moment? Well, what's coming up? Yeah, so that's been that's been great. Um, so you know, I've always always planned to climb uh, Mount Everest. It's always been a dream I've wanted to do since since I was a little kid. Um, and during the lockdown period, when we're all stuck at home, not being able to do anything, uh, I really looked into how possible. Is that or not? Is that a pipe dream or is it possible? So anyway, it's become apparent that it is possible if you do the right training and gain enough experience. Um, so I've been doing that. Um, but then alongside my wife said to me, she goes, well, if you're going to do this and you know, potentially put your life at risk, um, you should maybe do it for, for a cause. Um, so that's when we decided to, to set up our own foundation because we want to want to help people of Norfolk, uh, especially young people. And especially in line of you know young people, maybe not in the best areas who maybe need a little bit of direction or guidance to show that they can achieve what they want to achieve. Um, So rather than just, you know, finding them with food banks and stuff like that, because there's loads of amazing work 
which goes on that, our own club charities involved in that, the church that we're partnered with are involved in that. So there's, there's so much amazing work going on. So we want to think a little bit bigger picture of, okay, let's not just solve the problem today. How can we help educate to, you know, help a generation of people who maybe in 10 years, they come back and help a generation of people. So a real slow sort of burner is what we're, what we're sort of trying to do. Because we also want to be something which is for the rest of mine and my wife's, sort of life of having this sort of charity that, you know, when we finished worked or we've moved away from the area or whatever, it, you know, we still have a legacy of, of being able to help because, you know, this area has given us so much. Um, you know, our son's a fully fledged Norwich fan and, and, you know, talks like he's from Norfolk now. So it's, you know, we're, we're going to have a part of us is going to be here forever, I think. So it's like, you know, we've got the voice and, and we've got the resource maybe to be able to give a bit back let's let's try and do that um and only good can come from that we think um so that's that's why we did it and, and we've enjoyed it and, and it's been nice actually you know to have something different to think about those times as well um which is which has been nice but it's certainly you know work has always been and will always be the priority but it's nice to have something which you can use as a bit of a hobby which you can see maybe being impactful on others were you surprised by some of the criticism around that last season you saw on social media yeah maybe I don't, I don't know if the local papers did as well you know saying yeah. taking your eye off the ball and yeah like yeah I mean a local paper didn't help when they did some headline do you want this job or something it's like excuse me you know for five years I'd given the local paper nothing but all of my time uh, anytime they rang messaged on the record off the record I was there to answer that call through difficult periods through good periods so I didn't think I deserved a headline like that to be honest, um, and you know that's that's ended in the breakdown between me and them, which I think is very different between the club and them. I think you know people have taken out as a club aren't talking to them. They're at a training ground three times a week, so that's a lie. Um, but there's a big difference between me needing to talk to them. Um, so I was surprised, but then wasn't as well because you know people like to have a stick to beat you with. Um, you know the headline that Henry Winter did after a piece I did with him didn't help me. Um, although there was some strategy behind what I said in that because I knew we were going through a difficult period and my time with the interviews to actually take the attention away from Dean at the time and the team. Uh, it certainly worked uh, much more than I much more than I hoped or expected, but you know it, it did do a job in that in that regard for sure because it took it all away from them and put it all on me being the, being the villain. Um, but for sure, it was completely taken out of context. You know, it's like you know people sort of have a try and have a dig now of. You know, you're more interested in climbing mountains, mate. It's like, well, I'm not being funny. I might go and climb a mountain in June instead of going on a holiday with my family. My family are probably the ones who should have the bigger issue with that, not not the club. Um, I'm not doing anything which hasn't had the blessing of the owners. I've never been away at busy, uh, business critical times. Um, or if I have been, it's been a period when well, we're doing nothing. So it's, it's, a, it's irrelevant whether I'm there or not. I also think with the level of staff we've got here, it's an insult to them of... You know, if I can't be away for a week climbing Mont Blanc, where I still have phone signal every single day, uh, because I think what people miss on these mountains is you don't get up at five in the morning and climb till five at night. It's physically impossible to do that. It's often short windows. And then you're in a tent, in a uh, in a cabin or whatever, normally with Wi-Fi. But also the staff here, uh, you know, if Neil Adams can't take on having a phone call with ex-player's agent to deal with something because I'm uncontactable for four hours, then Neil shouldn't be doing his job. If Lee Dunn can't see a recruitment process through, then I've not done my job to make Lee at the level he should be. So I think it's 
Uh, it's also that, but at the time it was an easy stick to get beaten with. I give them that stick, so that that's completely my my fault. But at the same time, I don't regret things I said because you know, I think we all have our challenges in our life, whether it's mental health, whatever things with family. It's like I'm not embarrassed to say that. Yeah, I want to have a hobby. I want to have a hobby, you know, because when you give them six years or at that time five years, everything to the club, missing holidays, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, missing son's birthdays and, and you know, mother's important birthdays or whatever um, it's like well yeah I'm not embarrassed to admit that you know what I'm going to take the odd week off to go climb and to achieve a dream that I've had since I was a little child with the club's blessing I was very clear with, with the owners at the club at the time I said if this isn't something you want to support not a problem I'll leave and I'll just go and do it and not in a going against a headway but in a listen, this is how much it means to me um, and ultimately I walked for over a five year period of time I'll have off and it's like, well, that's under your holiday entitlement. I'm like, well, yeah, I'm not asking for something above and beyond here. So, uh, but it is what it is. And I think, but what I would say, if we take that as a side, I've really enjoyed doing that stuff. I found it incredibly challenging. Um, you know, some of the climbs and, and, you know, learning about that altitude, learning about different cultures I've been in. Um, Kilimanjaro, I've been in um, uh, the Himalayas, you know, and you meet, cultures and people where you can't help but but learn from these people you learn about yourself when you're in stressful situations you're up on a mountain the weather's coming in you're struggling to breathe and you know that sort of mental strength and I actually think it's improved me uh, within my work because it's given me a different perspective it, it's helped me it's problem solving um, it's given me time to think you know I've come back going you know I've just had three four days completely clear heads thinking here you know, and being able to get out of that grind of the day to day, I think I've personally found really, uh, really helpful as well. I found it even in what I do, getting burned out and just doing the same thing over and over again. And we all do. It's exhausting. And it's on a much smaller scale think, than what you do. I think we none of us take ourselves serious enough in terms of looking after ourselves and getting our head up. I think creativity comes from. Yes, to be honest, most people when they have a holiday, they come back fresh to work. They've got some new ideas. They're in a much better place. That's the reason for that. You've just had a break. You've had a chance to switch off. You've had a chance for your body to recover, for your brain to recover. Um, I think it's unhealthy when people just get constantly consumed. That's why here with the staff, I, I encourage you to take time off. Take a breather. Not certain times. We've got three games in a week this week. It's like, sorry, guys, there's no time to have a day off. There's no time to have an hour off because these three games are the most important thing right now. But bang, into astral break. I don't want to see you. You know, I'll say to like, I had physio, I do not want to see you. I had one with our head of analysis last year. I said, if you're in the office next week, I will sack you. Because it's like, you need to get away. You need to spend time with your wife. You need to go and see, whatever it is you need to do. You don't need to be sat here looking at a computer screen. Um, you'll work out the problems by actually being away from here. And I think it's something as a club. And I think in society, we're learning more and more around, you know, whether it's mental health and, and all these different things to sort of help us, become better versions of ourselves and, and stuff like that. And I think it's, yeah, I'm invested in myself in that and I want the staff around me to invest themselves in that. I suppose that's an area where you've evolved then because you were talking about those days like early 20s when you're working every hour to prove yourself yeah. and move on and, you know, yeah. it's different I've, now. And that's four stone heavier. So my lifestyle was horrific, you know, because it was constantly in the car, constantly drinking fizzy drinks, chocolate. Luckily, I've never drank alcohol, so or else I definitely would have gone down that road for sure. Um, but you don't, I didn't look after myself and, you know, I wasn't the best husband I could be at home. I wasn't the best dad. I wasn't the best at work because I was constantly 
tired or you know didn't have that time to come up with ideas and be creative and I think as part of our my role you have to have that ability to be creative and and but you've got to take yourself out of that you've got to feel fit if, I, if I'm walking in looking like a bag of shit every day how's that inspiring to staff or players you know you, you've got to lead the way and don't get me wrong some days you feel like absolute crap and you've got to put a clown face on don't get me wrong but look after yourself um you know because as well along the season's long you know, there's no point burning out in September and then, like, crikey, we've got till May, potentially June. So it's, yeah, I think that, that's a big area of, I've evolved in and hopefully try to inspire a little bit the people around me to involve themselves, evolve themselves in that by leading the way of, you know what, I'm going to go and pick my son up and take him to football and leave an hour early because, you know what, I can still make phone calls, I can still receive phone calls and that hour isn't going to be missed. But he'd miss that hour mm. and he'd miss that hour of his dad being with him you know, uh, or supporting your wife's got some on supporting her, whatever it might be, or being there with your mum whose husband's in hospital or whatever, and just having that time to go, you know what, I will go out my way to come up here and maybe I can take a game up in the north, take her with me, you know, which makes, when I bump into miles, you always make a laugh. Is that your mum? I'm like, yeah, yeah, long story. But, you know, because it's about, you know, I think the staff seeing that that's okay as well. Because mm-hmm. um, life's short as well. It's not a rehearsal, is it? We're only here once, so I don't want to migrate stone. Oh, brilliant worker, but actually did nothing else and didn't inspire anyone else. So that'd be, I don't think I'd be happy with that. No, that struck me in the Bobby Robson documentary actually, where he said he regretted not having spent more time with his family. And his yeah. kids were saying, We didn't ever talk to him about football, we didn't yeah. spend much time with him, you know. And he was sad about that when he was older. Yeah, and, and I refused to do that because, you know, I, my dad left when I was very young. And so I always said to myself, If I ever have a kid, yeah, I'm going to do it the opposite way of. Yeah, if he wants to, I don't force him to do anything. But if I go and watch games and he wants to come with me, bang, in you come, in the car, and we spend that time together. I want to watch every training that I can, within reason. Like everyone, you have to miss, you have to make sacrifices. You know, I was in Italy yesterday, so of course I missed his training last night. But that's life, that's the job, that's everyone has that. But if I'm around and I can make it work, it's like, no, I want to be with him. Um, because also I think I want to, I think I can be his best teacher. You know, and, you know, to bounce off with the teachers he has at school who do a great job or that his mum, but me and his mum are obviously very different. So when we talk about diversity within work, I think it's the same for parent. And, you know, he'll come with a problem, he's getting bullied at school. My wife's solution is very different to mine. I'm not saying either hers is right or mine mine is right. Probably hers is more right than my solution, to be honest. But the point is, it's a bit like I want to have that time with him and I want him to take the best of me that he can learn from the worst as well um and yeah i, I don't want to sacrifice on that no. because you only get one opportunity i don't want to i don't want him to grow up like i've grown up being resentful of my father mm. that that would break my heart i suppose you want them to know now what it took us 20 years to learn don't yeah you, really? exactly yeah. yeah and we can fast track him on that you've got to let him fail absolutely so i'm a believer in that i enjoy watching him if he's playing tennis or football and it's hard i enjoy watching him get beat because it's like you have to learn to deal with this now. You're on your own, you're on that court, you're on that football pitch. You've, you've, got, to, you've got to work out this problem now and you've got to find a way, whether that's through determination or skill. Um, and if you do lose, you've got to learn to, how you're going to cope with that now and likewise if, if you win. But also there's certain things where you can fast track. And I remember when I worked at Liverpool actually, the, where Pep Segura was a technical director for the academy and Rodolfo Borrell, who's now Pep's assistant, were the two coaches. And, and they talked it from a coaching context of, no, 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 the game is not the teacher. You have to tell them. So there's certain parts of the game, you tell them to do this. And I think it's the same with parents. Parenting. It's like, 
No, no, you don't have to wait for him to put his hand on the stove to tell him that's going to burn his hand. If he chooses to do it after, then that's his own fault. But the fact is, it's like a certain bit's like, no, no, you need to tell him that that's right from wrong. Um, so I think that there's other times where, yeah, you've got to go and learn and discover, of course, because you might find a better way of doing it than your dad can or your mum can or whatever. But I think there's certain things still of like, you know, a bit more old school of like, that's unacceptable, son. If you do that, there's going to be a consequence to that. And I think I think that's important for all of us in life. And I'll just ask you two more quick ones because I know yeah. you've got to go to the game. Um, first of all, what should Norwich's ambitions be? Sort of long, medium to long term, would you say? To, to get and thrive in the Premier League. You know, we have to believe we can find a way of doing that. We have to. Um, and it's everyone's determination here from board all the way down to our academy guys of that's what we're all here to do and we won't settle until we've done it. Brilliant. And then the final one, what are your personal ambitions for the rest of your career and your life? Yeah, um, I think it's just to whatever I do, try and leave something in a better place. Um, you know, if you would have asked me that five years ago, I probably would have had a real clear, I want to work in Spain or Germany or do this or do that. And, and there's still part of me who wants to work abroad, but I've definitely gone more away from being obsessed of being in football all my life. You know, I think my future might be away from that. I love Formula One. Is there an avenue I could work in there? Maybe is it in business? Because um, I think, if anything, the last year has probably taught me is, ah, do I want to be getting abused in the street when I'm 60? I'm not, I'm not sure I want to be doing that, to be honest. I think it's this game, and I love it, but there's a flip side of it where I think it's getting worse and worse now that what people deem as acceptable to say to you. So I think... You know, maybe that's not forever. Do you get that then? Sorry to butt in. Yeah. Do you do get abuse yeah. out and about? And... Yeah, a lot. Okay. Yeah, which is disappointing, really, because you almost yeah. like you don't sort of ask for that, um, yeah. and you don't do it for that. And oh, listen, all people being upset and angry, but I think it's a narrative has been set and been created that it's like, no, nah, that's that's not fair. Um, How do you respond to that? Because I've just never had walk, that. You just have to walk along. Right. I think the worst thing is if you're with your son and your wife, yeah, or one of them. It's like. There's a grown man there calling me the C word in front of a six-year-old. I don't think that's okay. Um, but if you get in a confrontation, you're probably being filmed by his mate, so you can't win. Um, and that's that's disappointing because I think if that's what society's come to now, I think that's pretty... pretty because I don't think anyone should have to go to work and pub with that. Because don't get me wrong, if I was going to a pub every Saturday night in the middle of the city, you're almost asking for it. It still isn't right, but you're almost going, well, actually, you're in an environment where everyone's drunk, probably coked up. You, you're going to get a bit of that. I don't. I have a very, very quiet, very, very quiet life. So um, it's in and around the stadium and stuff like that. But it is what it is. It, it's disappointing. I don't like it. Um, I don't think it's right. But it also helps you, teach you, like, yeah, okay, that, that won't be. I'm not sure I want to do that mm. forever. Uh, I think there's got to be something else. Because what I won't let it do is let me kill my enthusiasm and love of the game. Because one thing I definitely don't want to do when I'm 60 is I want to be watching football you know, with my son, with my family, with my friends, and loving the game. Um, so the day I ever stop doing that would be definitely the day I leave because I'm not letting my little kid of how I've ever always seen football being tarnished by by anyone, to be honest. And I just wonder, a very final, but is there any way the fans can ever come and see round? Because it is a fantastic facility. Yeah, I mean, we do a lot sort of media-wise and the 23s games are open for people. But um, yeah, I mean, we've never sort of denied anyone sort of access but Shame I think the hard thing is so Simon a little bit is and I think this is our local media's problem is they've got nothing to compare it with because our local media only report on this so say say the media in Huddersfield 
You've got Leeds, Sheffield United, Sheffield Wednesday, Bradford City, Halifax, Man City, Man United, all within 40 minutes of you. So you've got constantly comparisons to go, actually, we're quite good because the guys at Sheffield United get no access. We get loads of access. Here, because it's only Norwich, it's almost like they're comparing against ourselves. And I think that's where it's tough uh, for us sometimes. Because and, and I think really unfair on the club. I don't mean unfair on me at all, because it isn't. But on the club of, you know, like Dan Olker, head of comms, Oh, no one communicates like, mate, he's worked at three other clubs where he's like, you do not get this access anywhere else. You know, we had it with Dean in pre-season. Dean's like, well, have I got to do interviews with local press in pre-season? He goes, Villa, I never did that. I just did a club media and if they want to take it, they took it. It's like, come on, Dean, that's the right thing to do. And he's like, oh, I'm happy to do it. But it's almost like, that's not normal. But I think for here, it, it sort of is. And I think we've almost created a rod for our own back, really. But at the same time, going back to the start of the interview where we spoke about the community and stuff, that's also the right thing. So although it's a bit unique for us, but sometimes you do wish and go, I wish you'd go and report on Stoke City for a year and then come back and say that actually we don't interact. Because I think you'd then realise what not interaction really looks like. Mm. Um, so that's tough. That's why, you know, the national journalists we got on brilliant with because they actually respect it, that they go around over the clubs every single day and they're like, Norwich, unbelievable, they give us this, they give us this, they give us this. Um, but yeah, it is what it is. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you, Stuart. Thanks Brilliant. so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back next month with another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website and on Twitter at ground underscore guru.